This is the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Remember that Meryl Streep movie where she and her family take a rafting trip and then psycho Kevin Bacon forces them to take him down the river? Yeah. Okay, that's his dream vacation minus Kevin Bacon. Wow. Where's mine is Kevin Bacon minus the river. So, hey, moving on. Boils and ghouls, lock your doors and strap yourselves in. From Los Angeles, California, Bloody Disgusting presents the Boo Crew Podcast. Horror news, commentary, reviews, interviews, and more with your hosts, Lauren and Trevor Shan. And Leone D'Antonio. I'm Leo. I'm Lauren. I'm Trevor, and we are the Boo Crew. Welcome to episode 135. Here's a Boo Crew fright fact. In 1922's Nosferatu, Matt Trek, the actor who played Count Orlock, he only blinked once. And that's in an hour and 35 minute long film. His eyes must have been so dry, like I can't even imagine. <laughs> I'm sure they split it into scenes, no? No, I mean, he, like, literally, on purpose, was told not to blink. And wow. he only, he, they only caught it once, him blinking his eyes. And I guess people at the time thought there was, like, a, this huge rumor going around that he played such an authentic vampire that... He himself was a vampire. This time around, you're joined by two of Hollywood's most renowned storytellers, actor Kevin Bacon and writer-director David Kep. Their latest project stars Kevin, the wonderful Amanda Seyfried, from one of our favorite movies. Jennifer's Body. Jennifer's Body. Yeah. And Avery Essex. It's a psychological horror film called You Should Have Left. At time of release, available on demand everywhere now. We'll get into their horror first, the mechanics of reinventing the haunted house movie, the power of storytelling through the genre lens, and maybe get into a little Freddy Krueger and Bride of Frankenstein action. Who knows? Episode 135 starts now. Hi, this is Kevin Bacon. And this is David Kep. Too late to leave now, so sit back and listen to the Boo Crew. What is this place? It was a different house before that one. What sort of house? Why do people hate Daddy so much? The judge and the jury all found him innocent, but some people didn't believe him. Chose me. He must be guilty of something. People have always stayed in that house. Ella! Some don't leave. Wake up! It's a dream! The right ones usually find the place. Or maybe it's the other way around. The place finds them. Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. Joining the Boo Crew via the Speakeasy Studio are two content creators, artists, and storytellers who have both manifested tremendous cultural impact through their exciting and inspired work. He's one of the most successful screenwriters of all time. He helmed films like the Oscar-winning Jurassic Park, Carlito's Way, Mission Impossible, 2002's Spider-Man for Sam Raimi, War of the Worlds, The Tremendous, Death Becomes Her in 1992, also winning an Oscar, Panic Room, Carlito's Way, which earned two Golden Globes, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, the list goes on. He's also directed some of these very films, 1999's Stir of Echoes, Secret Window, Ghost Town, The Trigger Effect, and more. In 2019, he published his first novel, Cold Storage, which the New York Times calls pure, unadulterated entertainment. 
Also here with us, an actor, producer, and musician whose influence on pop culture is undeniable, and his work as a philanthropist and humanitarian continues to make real-world change. He's brought to life the most well-known characters in films of all time. Friday the 13th, Footloose, Quicksilver, Tremors, Flatliners, Apollo 13, Stir of Echoes, Hollow Man, three seasons of Kevin Williamson's spectacular The Following TV series, and countless others, earning him over a dozen awards, including a Golden Globe. He's been touring the world and releasing music for years in the Bacon Brothers. Their new single, The Way We Love, is out now. From acting to music to his charity work with SixDegrees.org, he brings an unbridled passion and kinetic energy to everything he does that just simply makes you feel at home. Joining us to talk about their brand new horror thriller, You Should Have Left, available on VOD and digital now, writer-director David Kep and star Kevin Bacon. Yeah! Yeah. Some intro. I'd like to quit after just those introductions. (laughs) Thanks a lot. Great to talk to you guys. Well, thank you guys and congratulations on what is destined to be a classic. What an honor and a true ride. And thank you both on behalf of horror fans everywhere for taking us on this journey. Well, thanks. Glad you like it. Let's talk about your journeys through horror and what your earliest memories while growing up of being affected by the genre, perhaps some of the first horror movies you remembered experiencing that stayed with you. I remember sneaking into um, 3D version of a Vincent Price movie, and I think it was called The House of Wax, maybe, or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we, we, we had to uh, pretend that we were a certain age. I can't, I can't remember, but it was, it was down on um, Chestnut Street where I grew up in Philadelphia, and, and we snuck in and I don't remember much about it, except that it was 3D and um, it was scary. And that was, you know, like you wanted to go to a scary movie if, if you were around that age. And, and, and especially if there were girls that were going along with you. So, uh, <laughs> it was um, I, I, I don't I don't I can't imagine there was that great a movie, but it did have 3D. It did have a guy playing a uh, one of those like. Uh, a power ball with the thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and David, how about you? The first movie I remember really terrifying the hell out of me. I didn't see it until I was, I didn't see it until I was 17. But when I was, I guess, probably 10, I was kept up for night after night after night just by the thought of it. And that was The Exorcist. I grew up in a small town in in the Midwest, in Wisconsin, and uh, went to Catholic school at the time. So, you know, we talked about the devil uh, pretty much every day. And there was a uh, (laughs) there was an ad campaign for The Exorcist that that ran in in what were then called newspapers. And it it said, um, fact, the devil can possess any man, woman or child of his choosing. And I, I, I remember it just, you know, it was in the paper, so it had to be true. And it had the word fact on it. So, you know, double. <laughs> and I, I came to this conclusion that the devil was going to get me in the shower in that moment when you rinse the shampoo out of your head. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> that's when you're most vulnerable. You know, you got to close your eyes. And that's when they would get you. So I would just really rinse as furiously as fast as possible and then rip open the shower curtain and look out and. Thankfully, uh, Beelzebub was never there. But, uh, scared the shit out of me. I didn't see the movie until I was like 20. As creators, what are the creative freedoms of constructing a piece with high tension and scares and a lot of stakes? 
What are the fun parts of crafting a horror film? I would say there's part of it is I'll just talk about the challenges first. And the challenges is, are that um, a lot of things have been done before and that there's, you know, only so many ways that you can tell a story and people have seen people walk down halls and people have seen, you know, open closets and they've seen things pass in the back. You know what I mean? So it's, it's, it's an envisioning a fresh kind of take on that. And then also being, not being afraid to, um, to embrace those moments when they really do work, you know? And uh, one of the things that I think David is so skilled with is that he's able to take everyday kind of moments and give them a level of a creepiness or uh, concern for the, 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 for the audience that it's just very, very creative. We might not even ever think of it. I mean, there's a, there's a moment in the, you should have left where we're in this rented house and I go and I'm, I'm just, trying on i'm trying to get the lights working i'm just going from light to light to light switch to light switch and it's not like a super scary moment but it's also this very very uh specific way of saying you're in a place you don't really quite understand and it's it's new and it's not functioning in the way that a home really is supposed to function so it's kind of laying in this this um subversive feeling that something could go wrong and those are the kind of moments that I think are really fun to explore. There's a feeling you get sometimes if you're like, if you're traveling and you, you wake up in the night to go to the bathroom, you forgot where you are for the moment. You're in a hotel someplace or somebody's house and you go to where the bathroom door usually is and the wall is there and you're feeling along this wall at night. And for about five seconds, you can't, you're like, what the fuck has happened to the door? And then you go, oh yeah, I'm in, I'm in Chicago. Okay. And I wanted the last 45 minutes of the movie to feel like that. What's great about scary movies is particularly, well, actually, ever since they've, they've been around, if you make a promise early on in the movie that you're going to be scared, that there will be jumps and scares and things to worry about, you can settle into a different kind of movie for a while. And we tell a story of this you know, sort of fatally flawed marriage. Um, so we snuck in a, a marital drama for about 45 minutes and then things get scary again, upsetting. And, you know, movies have been, scary movies have been doing that as long as I can remember. In the 50s, you know, with Invasion of the Body Snatchers and uh, it came from outer space. It would, it would be in the sort of package of a sci-fi horror movie, but you'd, y- it was all this worry about communists coming, you know, and the, the exorcist I mentioned, you, you know, was, terrifying movie, but it was also about our fear of what are, what is our new generation becoming? Cause we've just gone through the you know, late sixties, early seventies, Jordan Peele's, you know, doing a great job making these terrifying movies, which are genre movies, but are all about race relations. And uh, that's pretty, pretty fun and pretty tempting. And as long as you give an audience a, a package of something that, that is entertaining, you can make two movies at once. What was it that you guys first saw in each other when working on Stir of Echoes, which, oh my gosh, such a great film. What was it that you saw in, it, in each other, that kinship that planted that seed of eventually leading to this, reuniting on another film? I'm picturing like us looking at each other and like the violin <laughs> just like kind of, you know, starting to play. It was when your shirt was off, digging those trenches. Everyone's eyes are the dreamiest, as you know. Let's see, what did we, uh, well, we met. And, uh, <laughs> agreed about the you know we both liked the the material and um 
the working experience went so well, I think, because we both, I'll speak for what I think, and then I'd love to hear what you think. Um, <laughs> we both at that point, I think, Kevin, you're probably in your late 30s. I was around the same. And, but we'd worked a lot. And we both liked working and knew how we liked to work. And we didn't need to, you know, talk something to death. I think I found sometimes in directing uh, an actor who really knows what they're doing, you, the absolute best direction is to know when to shut up. And uh, Kevin has very, you know, scrupulously prepared and he knows what he's going to do. And if you have an emotional insight, he'd like to hear it succinctly, I think. He would also like to be left alone to do his thing. And uh, I think we both collaborated, but gave each other plenty of space. Yeah. I mean, I think that's all true. I think that the, the thing that David has, which is really hard to have is if you've had as many uh, giant kind of successes as he has and worked at the top of the line in our industry with the top of the line people and had that kind of influence, it's hard to find someone that's like that, that is a true collaborator, that actually has a, has the, uh, has a notion that he, he can actually learn something from, from other people or uh, is open to opinions. And or at least he does a really good job pretending that he is. And um, that, that is not just from the, from the uh, cast, but, you know, you, you see it in, in uh, production design and, and in um, music and uh, everything, you know. Uh, so I editing clearly. So that's the kind of work that I really want. Like at this point in my life and at that point in his life, I think both of us really wanted to be in a, in a, in kind of a partnership in, in, in a way at making the movie. That's not to say that we have a 50, 50 sort of uh, decision-making process. Cause it's, I'm not the director and, and he is, and gets, gets the the final bottom line. But I can tell you that pretty much the day, we wrapped Stir of Echoes. I started, you know, bugging him about trying to do something else. And it only took 20 years, but it was certainly worth it because getting back and finding ourselves in Wales, being able to make this, this movie was, was just fantastic. So how long ago did the idea of You Should Have Left begin to marinate? Well, it's kind of weird, you know, what, because I said 20 years and that was 20 years of me trying to, you know, wear him down. But... <laughs> I would say that once I could see the wheels turning for the first time in terms of many ideas that we had sort of knocked around, it went like wildfire in, in terms of like the, the actual timing that it takes to get, get things off the ground, you know, in, in, in the normal Hollywood sort of uh, cycle. Wouldn't you say, Dave? I mean, that was fast. Yeah. I think uh, we started, you said, hey, let's do something scary and let's have uh, it center around a marriage. And I said, cool, great, sounds cool. And then we sat down and kicked that around a little bit. And then you found Daniel Kelman's book and said, hey, this is a lot of what we were talking about. So I think from the time we optioned his book till the time we had a script was only three or four months. And then, you know, Jason uh, Blum responded to it right away. So they come together quick sometimes. In my experience, it's the thinking that takes forever. You know, once, you, once you're pretty clear on something, a script can happen quickly and if the script's good, then the movie can happen quickly. Yeah, 20 years of thinking and then, you know, and then all at once. Yeah. Well, seeing as you should have left and Stir of Echoes have similar themes of perhaps certain forms of psychosis and supernatural elements, 
Was there ever any thought or temptation to bridge both movies to make a new this new one a sequel, or was the plan to always stick to the source material novel? That didn't come up. No, we planned to stick to the novel and make this its own movie. I feel like I've been making creepy stuff happens to people in their own house movies for about twenty five years now, and I mean I'm not stopping anytime soon. That's my jam, and I um, I'm into it. There are yeah, there are a number of similarities between the movies but they never felt like they would go together. Now, what about finding Amanda Seyfried to play Susanna? She's terrific at playing these strong characters with, with a bit of a secret. Yeah. Once we started to talk about the marriage, I think pretty much right out of the gate, we decided that it should be his second marriage and that it should be a much younger woman. And, and that the, the paranoia of, of that and the fact that Theo was you know, having sort of doubts about uh, his relevance and his power fading away, then adding to the fact that she's an actor and, and has these very intimate relationships and, and that he's not and really doesn't understand her world. And David and I, you know, loved Amanda. We talked about her right away and went to sit down with her with our hat and our hearts and our hands, you know, really feeling like we were in this position where we were going to have to put on a really good show and, and make a, a strong pitch for her to come and bring her family to the countryside in Wales to take this journey with us. And much to our surprise, and uh, we will forever be grateful, she had already kind of decided that she wanted to do the film. And, uh, you know, I remember us kind of walking away and going, boy, did that just happen? And she was uh, absolutely fantastic, as you know, in in the movie, but also incredibly committed and and helpful and uh, gung-ho and and really a pleasure to work with yeah just a delight it it doesn't often work that way you don't usually get your first choice for everything but um but it did and uh yeah she was uh, she was fantastic and embrace I, I think we were also helped we were all three on the same page we all wanted to make the same kind of movie saw the characters the same way saw the essential drama and tension of the marriage the same way and so that helps a lot the boo crew will be right hey it's kaylee cuoco for priceline ready to go to your happy place for a happy price well why didn't you say so just download the priceline app right now and save up to 60 percent on hotels so whether it's cousin kevin's kazoo concert in kansas city go kevin or becky's bachelorette bash in bermuda you never have to miss a trip ever again so download the priceline app today your savings are waiting Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Back. Ask anyone who was brave enough to see Friday the 13th on Friday the 13th, and they will tell you they were terrified over and over and over and over. The 12th, the 13th, Friday the 13th. We dare you to see this film all over London and in the West End. Your Fright Day will be the day you're brave enough to see Friday the 13th. Certificate X. As far as characters and the way this is written, we start off feeling instantly for Theo. We we sense the generational gap we instantly see Susanna and Ella through his eyes and it kills us right from go 
How important is getting that right and making the connection with an audience and eventually making us care enough about these characters to create that effectiveness for the scares and the process you're going to take us through with them afterwards? It's the whole ball of wax. That's everything. You got it. You don't have to love them. You don't have to say, oh, gosh, they're, you know, they're just the, they're just the cutest thing. I just adore these people. You have to understand, them, you know, and and I think that the fact that Theo's 27 years older than his wife, we look at a little askance. But that is why that's the text of the marriage. That's the trouble that they're doomed. They shouldn't be together. And it's also why immediately in the story we start poking fun at him. She calls him old man. He goes to a, a set to visit her. The guy says, you're her dad. He has to listen to her, you know, have a simulated sex scene. It was stacking the deck a little to say, yeah, this guy probably shouldn't have married somebody this young, but he's paying the price for it. One of the main characters of this story is this incredible house. Incredibly unsettling because it's kind of this ultra modern looking house. that kind of sits like a monolith in the countryside in Wales. It's it's disturbed. That image alone is disturbing. Talk about finding that perfect house and creating its personality. David was very smartly um, leaning away from a traditional gothic kind of ivy covered, creepy, antique kind of house. And he had set it in Wales and was thinking about, you know, something modernistic and kind of pared down or minimalist. And then you kind of go, well, that's a great idea, Dave, but how do we find that in the middle of nowhere in Wales where you can't see any other houses around? And we saw this, uh, I guess I guess we were sent a, a link to... Um, that, was, that was Sophie Beecher, the production designer, day one, when I met her, before she even before we even hired her, she came in and showed some pictures and said, I think you want this place. And I looked at it and said, yes, there, we'll shoot there. That's what we want. And it was. But it's really problematic because that means that you've fallen in love with the location. And if you can't get it, mm-hmm. it really makes it, it really it's really disappointing. And, and it's not like, at least I don't remember us having a lot of other options, to tell you the truth. So when we finally were able to make it work, we were really lucky. It's true. Kevin, the producer, was telling me, "Okay, it's great. You know, let's keep looking. We need to have some alternatives. And I was like Bill Murray in Ghostbusters. I know Dan Aykroyd in Ghostbusters. He slides down the pole and says, this place is great. We'll sleep here tonight. (laughs) And I I also would just like to point out that one of the challenges that David had was that we were shooting in the house and we were doing um, a lot of work there. But then we were also building these sets down in, in London so that he would have the flexibility to make halls expand and doors could go places that they didn't go and walls could fly. Not to mention that we were, we added a second story. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff. And, and our production designer, as David mentioned, was, was doing a fantastic job with that. But keeping straight what you've shot in uh, Wales and what you're going to have to shoot in London when you're jumping back and forth between different scenes is extremely complicated. It's a real house of cards, not only for like just basic locations and and geography, but also for me going like, okay, I can't remember how many times this is the same. I'm in the same goddamn outfit for the whole fucking movie. And I'm like, (laughs) the outfit's not going to tell me anything. And, And so I really, really relied on David to, you know, just, you know, I just say, okay, which one is this and what's happened? And, I'm usually pretty good at keeping that straight, but it was it was really challenging with this one. 
It was also because you walk through the same door several times in a row in a scene and it opens into a different place, mm-hmm. which may be in Wales on the real location or maybe in London. So it's okay. Second time, third. Okay. No second day, third time through that door. Now it's the living room. Got it. Uh, it was, uh, it was, uh, it was challenging. What about the sonic palette? The sonic identity of the house and, and the score of the film. You've got it in the hands of a guy who's played an active role and Hans Zimmer's collective of composers has really come to his own on films like uh, The Odd Life of Timothy Green and his work on Pirates of the Caribbean. And you've also worked with them before, David, on, on some of your films. What is it about Jeffrey Zanelli that you feel like you like entrusting him with that sonic palette? Well, he's extremely good. He's extremely good at what he does. And working at coming up as he did with Hans Zimmer, he was put to task on a number of different kinds of films. So he had a really, it was just a great apprenticeship, very broad. And he's, he's also, I mean, he's a, he's a terrific composer, but he's also a, an ethnomusicologist in that he loves, I said, okay, I'm going to send you a script. This one's set in Wales. And he said, Wales, Wales, what do they play in Wales? I got to look into this. Hold on. So, he, you know, he looks into it and reads and Googles and finds out. And he says, I found an instrument called a taggle harp. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a stick with some uh, strings pulled across it, but with a, you know, and he found a taggle harp like on eBay and bought it and, you know, was plunking around on the floor of his studio trying to figure out how, how to play it and get, get sounds out of it. Cause he wanted that to be the, the sound of the movie. So it, it was great. He's just incredibly inventive and uses whatever's around. He tries to, you know, like a good composer, he wants to create it the sonic environment out of what the real environment of the film is or the fictional environment. Working with Avery Essex, who plays Ella, this is her first movie as far as we understand. And she has a ton of heavy lifting emotionally to do. How is that handled in direction? What kind of precautions or prep goes into the care of how you direct a child through certain really intense scenes? Avery doesn't need much. Uh, she is really intuitive. I know I keep talking about actors who don't need much, but, you know, who doesn't like that? Um, <laughs> she's really intuitive. We met her. We saw Terry Taylor, the casting director, looked at 100 or more kids. And, the, you know, we had it down to a few. And Avery was just so natural. She'd be a she. It's true. This is her first feature. She did a few commercials, one or two episodic TV things. But, you know, she'd be bouncing around off the walls and, you know, off the furniture and talking loud and being a kid. And then you say action and she would just lock in. It was kind of disconcerting. Kevin, I, I mean, you really were working with like a 45 year old there, it seemed like. Yeah, I mean, she's amazing. You know, I, I think that both of us feel that one of the first things that we want to do is make sure that the child feels safe because I don't really think any movie is, is worth putting a kid through a traumatic experience. So I said to Avery, you know, listen, I'm, I'm going to be doing some crazy stuff and I'm going to be getting angry and my have weird looks on my face and just know that yeah, I'm, I'm a professional pretender and, and so are you. And that that's, and we're going to pretend like together, but it's, but it's not real. It's, it's, we're just going to, and she called me fake daddy for a long time, which was kind of funny. And I'll never forget, but what was interesting about Avery is that she had a real hunger to understand acting in a way that I've never really quite seen from a kid. Sometimes 
Well, David's very, very good with children. The little boy in uh, Stir of Echoes was fantastic. Sometimes there's there's ways to just kind of shoot little pieces of them and you can do amazing things with with editing. But in Avery's case, you know, she really wanted to play scenes out. When she first started, we we realized that nobody had really told her that she was going to have to do it more than once, which was uh, a little bit of an adjustment. But I'll never forget. There's a scene in the um, in the in the movie where I'm talking to her and and uh, getting emotional. And, you know, the, the, the scene was you know, kind of hit me in a personal way. And I, I started to cry and I, and she's looking up at me and her eyes are just wide open. And the second David said, cut, she goes, how did you do that? How did you do that? She grabbed me and said, you have to tell me how you did that. That's amazing. You know? Yeah. It was really fascinating. And then that kind of extended to like, she wanted about the business and she wanted about, you know, press and agents. I mean, it's just real. I, I mean, I think she's going to, I think she'll be in it for the long haul. We'll see. Aww. Very bright and curious, which is the worst kind of kid. <laughs> <laughs> Only yeah, if you're the parent. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I got a bunch of them. <laughs> There's so many great props in this film. The Polaroids, Theo's notebook, the painting of the house. Did any of you keep any of this? Were you allowed? Like, <laughs> I love props. So. We're a jaded and unsentimental. <laughs> David gave us um, Polaroid cameras, though, as a wrap present. Oh, that's cool. Oh, that's super cool. <laughs> I, I used to keep props and souvenirs from movies for a while, but uh, no, I, no, I didn't keep it. I didn't really. Uh, up your garage in your basement, and then you're just dragging this stuff around all the time. That's true. That's true. No one's got room for a T-Rex anyway. Now, moving forward, you guys got some other great projects. I know, David, there's a rumor you're working on a script for Bride of Frankenstein. What are themes in the bride story that you think make it resonate and impactful to uh, audiences these days? I am. I um, I just gave Universal a new draft of that about a month ago, and they, they seem to really like it and are talking to directors. It's become the story of how are we extending our lives? How are we how, are, how can can we create life? Can we cheat death? It only gets more and more relevant over time. You know, the big life extension work right now that's being done out in Silicon Valley is is overwhelming and impressive and scary. And I feel like a present day version of that is, you know, is, is begging to be made. The the other thing is, you know, she's a woman who was who is not created but resurrected, and certain people feel ownership over her. And that, you know, seems quite, that's almost too relevant today in the, you know, era of uh, uh, Me Too. Uh, like, you know, th- what, are, what are her rights as a person, as a personhood exists uh, if you were dead? There's a lot of really interesting questions that it raises. Again, it's horror really effortlessly lending itself to metaphor. Kevin, any, uh, any film projects on the horizon for you in the immediate future? Uh, well... Yeah, it's kind of too early to say. I mean, I was in the middle of shooting uh, City on a Hill uh, series for Showtime. And, uh, you know, that, that got put on hold. Uh, yeah, I got a couple of things that I'm, um, you know, starting to attach to. And, you know, just as usual, just out there begging. I did a really um, fun thing, another collaboration with David, which is a a book. Well, it's a, what would you call it, Dave? A novella or a short story? It's an audible original. It's an audible original. Okay. A a story like somewhere between a short story and a novella. It's about an hour and a half, I think. 
that when when all was said and done. And uh, he wrote it during lockdown, during quarantine. And as is sometimes the case with him, things just kind of, you know, fly out of him. It's really good and really right in the sweet spot of David Kep in that it's it's scary and funny, but also very poignant and uh, kind of speaks to our relationship with nature. And I read it. I mean, I did the, uh, you know, the, the audible original voice for it. That's coming out at some point. Is it out yet? I don't know. It can, it's coming out in July. I don't know the exact date, but uh, uh, thank you again for reading it. And God Give bless it a you for mentioning it. Give it a listen. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. We're looking forward to that. Kevin, Robert Englund has expressed interest in playing Freddy Krueger one more time in an Elm Street movie, but he also stated he'd love to see you play Freddy. What are your thoughts on perhaps wearing the fedora and uh, donning the glove knives in a possible sequel or reboot soon? Looks like a lot of time in the makeup chair, right? <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I, I'm, I entertain all offers. I'm a guy that goes where the characters are. So if I feel like the character's there, sure. I think it's a, I think it's a, you know, it's a cool idea. It's a great franchise. You gave me a really lovely pass once. I asked you to play a part in something I was doing. And you read it and said, you know, it, it's good, it's good, it's good. You said, but um, I always just look at it one way. Do I feel like I can bring something to this? Or do I feel like I can't really, I don't really have something I want to bring to this? You said, I don't have anything I want to bring to this. <laughs> Which I thought is a lot like the way I respond to ideas. Your mind either kind of spins with possibilities or it just doesn't. And it didn't feel personal. It just felt factual. And then before we go, uh, Kevin, I just wanted to quickly just ask about what you've been doing with org and the I Feed the Front campaign. Yeah, I Feed the Front is um, supporting two really cool um, organizations that they kind of work. It's like a it's like double good because you're um, supporting sm- uh, small restaurants where the uh, people obviously haven't have been out of work and haven't been able to be open. And they uh, provide meals that then they take to uh, healthcare workers or people on the front lines who, you know, need fuel and need sustenance. And so it, it kind of gives back in both ways. And just something we launched with SixDegrees.org. Truly awesome work, Kevin. Well, guys, thank you so much for joining the Boo Crew today. Congrats again on the film. At time of release, You Should Have Left is available on demand everywhere now. Thanks, everybody. Take care. That was the Boo Crew Podcast, episode 135. Special thanks to our guests, Kevin Bacon and David Kep. Follow Kevin at Kevin Bacon on Instagram and Twitter and at DG Kep, that's K-O-E-P-P on Instagram. Check out their new film, You Should Have Left, at time of release, available on demand everywhere now. If you like this conversation, be sure to check out episode 116 with Robert England, episode 85 with Mike Flanagan and Kate Siegel, Episode 69 with Megan Fox and episode 48 with Juliette Lewis. Also, please rate and write us a review on Apple Podcasts if you really enjoy what you're hearing. We appreciate that so much. Production tracks for this episode provided by Powerman 5000. 
Until next time, it's the Boo Crew saying sweet screams. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at TalesFromTheBoo. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shands and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shands. Chopped and sliced by Trevor Shands. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the bloody disgusting podcast network. Bye. A bloody disgusting podcast network, home of the Boo Crew. For horror-centric interviews, SCP archives, weekly full cast storytelling, horror queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and creepy for disturbing and terrifying creepy pastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com/podcasts.